You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today is Professor Doug Stokes from the University of Exeter. Doug, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Joe. Thank you very much. Your latest book is called Against Decolonization, Campus Wars and the Decline of the West. You finish the book by saying the West is assailed by a cycle of rising domestic illiberalism and reaction deepening division and resentment. So how big of a problem do you see this attack on Western values, on liberalism, and perhaps on the history of Britain and the United States? Well, I think it's uh, it's it's very large. I mean, this is this is there's so many layers to this question, right? I, I mean, I think I, what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll 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 walk through why I sort of wrote the book and where I come from on it, and then I hopefully that that kind of touches on on the, your, your your question just now. So, so for me, I, I wrote the book because. Uh, perhaps naively, I've always felt that universities should be places where you know you have uh, a very kind of intellectually plural environment, open inquiry, and they ultimately should be engines of social mobility, right? And you know, and when you have that free flow of knowledge, and uh, you know, people just disagree, but, but you you have that kind of contestation take place, then ultimately it kind of advances culture, it advances knowledge, and it advances human civilization, right? So that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And so what really prompted me to write the book was this feeling and this sense um, that universities, for a whole variety of often very complicated reasons, commercialization, but also ideological capture and, and increasingly sort of monoculture and then sets of kind of charities and structural incentives that incentivize certain types of worldview and certain types of behavior. Universities have really sort of like lost their way, in my opinion, in that sense and it really and it really came on board um it's been going on for quite a while but really came on board during the pandemic lockdown so so you, you saw especially you saw the election of trump in, in 2016 and you had you, you saw this kind of catastrophization around that uh and then brexit happened in the uk and there was parallels drawn it's quite banal parallel parallels but so essentially there was this, and a lot of the, a lot of the left a lot of the progressive left in in the uk kind of a lot import a lot of this cultural stuff from america mm. so what the democrats do what you know and what what what, the, what goes on in america we seem to import it wholesale over here you know so you've got young people on the streets during the blm uh, demonstrations you know hands up don't shoot and so the reproduction of these kind of discourses and these tropes in in the uk which is another thing we can talk about in terms of how dis distinct we are, the UK really is from American culture, but we can come on to that. Yeah. So, so we sort of, we sort of imported all the, all this, sort of, this 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 stuff from America, and then especially after George Floyd and the BLM riots and stuff like this, we really saw this mass, in my opinion, moral panic around the questions of race, in particular in universities, where universities, despite being for decades very progressive, 
very left-wing, centres of social mobility, very diverse. If you, if you actually look at the data, um, so, so, so but then there's really kind of catastrophization around the questions of r- alleged racism and the ubiquity of racism in university campuses. And, and, and then also then how that was evidenced. And how that was evidenced was, was a kind of abandonment of, of data Nobody can sustain that UK universities are, are, are racist based on non-diversity. Anybody can glance at the data. It's very read, readily available. Incredibly diverse. In terms of demogra- demographics, over-representation of black and minority ethnic students and staff, uh, you know, the educational outcomes of Chinese and, and, and Indian heritage students uh, are, tend to be much higher than uh, white students. Whichever way you swing it, basically, the, the idea that the universities are bastions of racism and white supremacy are just absolute nonsense. So, so, so what happened is basically, so I kind of, I wrote the book to sort of push back against that and to, to try and try and defend, I guess, these values, kind of more plural values, that I think are, are really important to us all. Um, uh, so, 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 I guess if you want to put it in a framework, go back to your original question about you know about the what. So, it, to, to to an extent, universities are really uh, what happens on campuses today. Often, then goes into broader culture tomorrow. You know, so most of the people that work in media and publishing and advertising in the cultural industries have gone through the university system. University system in the social science and humanities, at least, is, is overwhelmingly sort of, I kind of like a sort of liberal left, if you will, right? Um, so, 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 so what happens on campuses then really goes into the culture downstream a bit, a bit sort of, so, so, so that's, that, that kind of, so that's kind of why I wrote the book, really, and my motivations for it. Going back to your statement, the West is assailed by a cycle of rising domestic illiberalism and reaction deepening division and resentment. I suppose one thing that perhaps people may counter that with would be that, you know, although obviously a lot of this stuff does happen on a university campus, there are always going to be protests from students uh, you know, universities, they tend to be very left-leaning places. So I wonder, does that perhaps, you know, warrant the statement, which is, you know, quite a strong statement that you make in? Um, do you feel that these two things kind of match up? Well, they do. I mean, well, in many ways they do, right? So you have this kind of fantasy now. The culture wars are just inventions of the kind of right-wing culture warriors. When 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 you look at essentially, uh, we can talk, talk about this on multiple levels, and I try to do that in the book. Unpack some of this stuff mm. theoretically. Since since the late nineteen sixties onwards, the kind of the new left cultural kind of wave, uh, sort of post-modernism, post-structuralism, post-colonialism emerged ultimately out of a, of a critique of Marxism, but also capitalism and the and Western civilization per se, right? And so, so, so I, I think that you, you, you see that, you, you see that, and um, so, in terms of the ultimately the subversion of the kinds of value, philosophical, almost transcendent values of, of Western civilization, if we think what 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 what's been the basis of that in the post-war period, at least, it has ultimately been about broadly speaking a kind of meritocracy. Broadly speaking, the kind of the, the centrality and the value of rational adjudication of truth claims, 
broadly speaking, about a kind of ontological realism, i.e., you know, the world exists independently of human consciousness, and we kind of gradually, through a process of contestation, uncover the, the, the various ways of understanding the world, a kind of scientific advancement, right? And then also inherent to that, ultimately, there is a kind of there is a kind of a hierarchy of knowledge, isn't there? Insofar as some some knowledge systems are just work better than others they just they just have more veracity more truth they they explain on ontological reality better than others you know i think i use the example in the book you know you can you can believe you, know, you can self-identify as a bird but ultimately if you jump off a building you're going to splatter because <laughs> the ontolog- ontological reality of gravity do you see what i mean so 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 we have we, we have those kind of values that have kind of helped to propel western civilization and more broadly, sort of the global international system uh, uh, forward, and there's been all kinds of developments under, under, under the aegis of those kind of values. But what we're seeing now, and this new dispensation within our culture, is really the kind of the the wholesale attack on that. And I think, and I, in the book, I try to make the argument that a lot of that stuff comes from this kind of new left, this kind of post-structuralist, post-modernist, post-colonial critique of rationality, of science, of objectivity, of ontological realism, and these other values. And so we see that now on a kind of more generalized and generic level within our within our media industries and our cultural industries. You know, from so for giving an example of it would be a, you know, essentially you can ultimately self-identify as whatever you wish to be. So you can suspend reality, you can suspend biology, you can suspend these things. Or, you know, data and science and these kind of these aren't about rational adjudication of an ontologically of ontological reality. They are they are in fact uh, ultimately different ways of seeing the world that are fundamentally imbued with power. So to knowledge and knowledge is, is transmission and its guardianship and in its centrality to advancing human civilization is no longer about its veracity or, or its claim to truth and its testable observable truth. It now simply is about different knowledge systems contesting each other so 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 then you see the uh, in, incredibly so the kind of racialization of knowledge so there's white ways of being there's white ways of knowledge so again so to go back to the, the, the defense of liberal values what we're then seeing is we're seeing we're seeing ironically or maybe not ironically the kind of the the, the increasing kind of metaphysical metaphysical introduction of apartheid like thinking within Western culture, where knowledge isn't something we can all access and contest. It's it's kind of racialized or or genderized or sexualized, you know, and, and then and then that has other spin-offs as well. So do you see what I mean? So essentially mm. in the book, what I try and do is I argue for the primacy of ontological realism. I can get philosophical on it if you wish. If you want me to unpack that section, I can unpack that because I think it's actually quite an important section. I think for me, I'll go back to this uh, there's a lot of stuff, you know, anti-woke, woke, anti-woke, and this culture war stuff like Groundhog Day. Yeah. And I'm personally sick of hearing about this stuff all the time, absent either resolute action on the part of the government to address some of the legal nexus of that, which can talk about that if you want, i.e. the Equality Act. And I touch upon that in, in the book too. And, and in particular, it's operationalization of subjectivity in law. Or we, we have to begin to understand as a, as a culture the sort of deeper philosophical issues that, that are involved in that. And again, I try and do that in the book by unpacking some of these deeper philosophical issues. And by understanding that, we can scratch away the ephemeral surface of this stuff and begin to look underneath into the black box of what actually is driving a lot of this stuff. And Doug, if we go back to 2020, 
around the time of the death of George Floyd, there seemed to really be a seismic shift in terms of race relations within both the UK and in the US. And I would kind of love to ask you, uh, because in preparing for this, uh, I pulled up a post that I remembered from the University of Bristol. Um, and they came out, the mathematics department put out a post saying, we must determine collectively what anti-oppressive and specifically anti-racist mathematical research looks like. And later on in the, in the letter, they say, we will consult with the Bristol SUBME network about how their work on diversifying the curriculum can be applied in the context of our school. We will also investigate incorporating mathematical ethics and social justice in our undergraduate teaching. And I think the majority of people listening to this would say that, you know, mathematics is not a racist subject. It is an objective subject. So in your view, what does happen? You know, what would perhaps far left people be hoping to achieve perhaps by uh, detracting from objective reality? For a start, I wouldn't say these people are radical left. I think they mostly think of themselves as radical left, but I don't think they're radical left at all. I think I think uh, a lot of a lot of um, I think it's kind of a lot of it's just uh, playful politics. It's easy politics. I mean, the you know, it, it's kind of all in the campus. And it's all experimenting and all oh, you know, and virtue signaling and oh, we can sort of do this and I'll be cool and edgy. It's just absolute. I mean, having grown up in Hackney and seeing like the rise of, you know, all kinds of movements and stuff like that, this is just absolute, in my opinion, dalliant. I, got, I can't swear on this thing, can I? But anyway, it's kind of, it's not, it's absolute bollocks. <laughs> Complete and utter fucking bollocks, in my opinion. Uh, it has no... Cut that out if you want, whatever you want to do with it. No problem. But 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 but, but ba basically, it's absolute rubbish. Um, because it, because it, then you think about it, right? I mean, essentially, what the way I see it is, universities need to be bastions of things, and they have to be tolerant, plural, open, idea in anti-discriminatory, and nobody really has a problem with those values. You look at opinion poll amongst the British public; there are overwhelming majority are on board with those values right okay but, but but so essentially so what they're trying to do they're trying to conjure in my opinion these kind of demons just to make themselves feel good and also they, and, and but then also you think about it it kind of it, it, it also slots very well into the structure of the university system but also the british institutional system as well i kind of touch on this in the book too and that is you think about it most of the authority of British institutions has been hollowed out in many senses by globalization, by big changes in our politics and our culture. British politics itself has kind of like been displaced and it's undergoing very, very strong forms of tectonic, you know, sort of shifts. But nonetheless, you still have a kind of, in my opinion, sort of, well, a sort of technocratic or bureaucratic class that wishes to sustain its bureaucratic power, right? And so under this kind of form of globalization, where traditional hierarchies, traditional elites have been transformed by many of these series of sort of tectonic shifts, both in British politics and the economy, but also global politics, 
a shift of, of power to East Asia, economic power, right? So, so in the book, what I try to make the argument for is this idea of the kind of new moral orders begin to emerge. So you re-energize bureaucratic power and institutional power through through kind of a, a sort of re-articulation of a moral order, and in particular, a politics of vulnerability. And we see that very, very strongly in British in Western politics in general, right? Especially the Anglophone politics, where you have uh, political and economic and cultural elites that kind of articulate a politics of vulnerability. And, and so essentially, there, there are these various vulnerable populations, X, Y, Z, or whatever you want, yeah, that if you essentially are, are, will be subject to something terrible happening to them, racism or sexism, or they're going to commit suicide if they're going to transition into the gender identity. So you know, there's, there's this constant kind of politics of vulnerability. And, and the solution to that is to basically do what I want you to do and give me the power to fix these alleged vulnerabilities, yeah. So, so it's, it's a kind of articulation of bureaucratic and, and, and hierarchical power through a politics of vulnerability, endlessly vulnerable populations. Give an example: Sadiq Khan, right? It's been huge kind of um, opposition to the ULES scheme, etc. Right? Classic, classic kind of politics of vulnerability script in this. Oh. You can't say that because what you're going to do is you're going to kill children because they're breathing dirty air. So you've got to give me power and more money, basically, and do what I want you to do. Do what I'm telling you to do because it's your own good. It's a the vulnerable populations, and if you don't do it, you're killing children. Yeah, or you're racist. Or you see what I mean? So that that kind of moral script that we see is a very strong moral script that almost very strong in progressive politics a politics of endless vulnerability and the articulation of endless catastrophization and vulnerability to shore up what are kind of endlessly fluid coalitions that we see from, you know, very strong in, in progressive politics. There's some sort of um, links there between that and potentially seeking more power? Is that what I was kind of inferring? Well, well, well absolutely, because, because I mean, it's, it's a kind of like toxic mix. So essentially, yeah, of course, yeah. So essentially... I, I'm the parent, and there are these vulnerable populations, and, and you citizens are subjects, ch children. And I'm going to articulate what the problem is, and I'm going to catastrophize around that. And the solution to this problem is to give me more power. And if you don't give me more power, you're going to do great moral harm to these poor people. Yeah? Classic. It's a classic kind of like progressive moral, moral sort of script that you see endlessly played out time and time again. I gave the example of, of Sadiq Khan, right? And then so, so, so you've got that going on, the classic kind of technocratic sort of Blairite script at the heart of British politics and British institutions now, right? And sort of re-inscribing moral, moral authority through a politics of endless vulnerability of vulnerable populations, alleged vulnerable populations. You scratch away the surface of most of this stuff. It's all rubbish. I mean, you know, it's... Anyway, and, and, and even if it's not, th th there is deep political contestation that needs to happen around. So go back to my examples. Khan says, if you don't give me more money and more bureaucratic power to police the ULES scheme, for example, little children, little babies are going to die because they're breathing bad air. You know, completely, utterly contestable. But then that itself is a, is, is a process of political contestation. There are other people, often poor people, that can't afford electric vehicles and can't afford the Teslas. Who would be locked out of that? You see what I mean? So they have where where their where their interests. But again, it's this kind of it's this moral script. This is what drives me insane. 
It was wrapped up in this moral script that underneath it is essentially a process of technocratic and bureaucratic power uh, as well to shore up these, this kind of this, this moral economy, as, as I call it in the book. Of course, you obviously open up the book discussing George Floyd. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that his legacy and the cultural momentum that really followed on from his death really, in my mind anyway, sparked a big push towards ideas like anti-racism, like decolonization, like white privilege. Um, we can, of course, debate the merits and the drawbacks of each of those ideas. But what I would love to ask you is just how big of a moment in terms of, for instance, race relations did you see uh, George Floyd's death as? A massive cultural moment. Right, so uh, obviously in the states, it was a global moment. It was glo- lots of protests globally, and alleged uh, uh, sort of neo-racism, so sort of anti-racism, or, or what some people would call neo-racism. So essentially, and which is, if you look at the data on it, it's completely false data. Frankly, if you look at the, the FBI statistics on it, or the Department of Justice statistics on alleged police killings, demographics of that, it's just. And I do a lot of that data analysis in the book, and I'm relying on very, very solid academic peer-reviewed studies on that um so so if you look if you look at the actual data on it it's 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 it's, but i think that was also itself wrapped up with this kind of politics of catastrophization around trump's victory in 2016 you can't disaggregate the blm movements right Uh, and 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 the reaction against that from a kind of deeper sense of catastrophization and, and political weaponization ultimately of corralled sort of or this kind of sense of uh, uh, anti-racism from that. And in, to a lesser extent, you have the, the sort of similar dynamics, political dynamics, although they're very different. Brexit and Trump are very different. We have a very similar dynamic here where I think a lot of progressive elites and technocratic elites ultimately saw their mission as about uh, protecting um, us from this endlessly incipient fascism. Right, and this is this is this is another very. I mean, Paul Mason, for example, has done a lot. He just, he was a really good. It's some really interesting in work, by the way. On you know Paul Mason, the, the former Channel Four. And he's, I think you know he, he was a Channel Four reporter. He's sort of run to be a Labour MP. Yeah. He, he did he, he did a book about Brexit and fascism. You know, so you see a lot of that kind of uh, analysis of like Brexit is inherently fascistic and racist and, and stuff like that. So, so, so I think I think that um, I think you, you see a lot of you saw a lot of that, and that is this kind of this uh, uh, fear of endless sort of the, the 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 kind of advent of fascism in the anglophone political economies, basically. And John Gray has done some really interesting work on that. The philosopher John Gray he wrote this, you know some really interesting stuff on that, and his interpretation of that is whenever ordinary people's uh, political agency is expressed in, for example, the vote, the kind of protest votes for Trump or the vote for Brexit, kind of technocratic elites, liberal elites, if you want to use that kind of phraseology, tend to interpret that as as this kind of incipient fascism. So, so essentially, whenever they vote against the, the negative effects of, ma- of, of globalism or globalisation, the outsourcing of jobs, the undercutting of workers' uh, wage bargaining rights because of the move of manufacturing to East Asia, mass immigration, and the stress that places on housing supply, on jobs, on local services. Whenever you see a, a votes against that, that is always tends to be interpreted by progressive elites as a sort of 
the, the early warning signs of fascism. And then the reaction against that is this kind of hyper catastrophization within our cultural industries mm. around and, and endlessly, you know, it's racist, there's racism everywhere, it's anywhere, it's ubiquitous, there's sexism, it's, it's, you know, we have to fight this. And do you see what I mean? And so again, so I think, I think all those, all those dynamics really came together. Trump put it, put it, was big, put it on steroids. And I think what will happen is if, if he gets the nomination and if he wins in the next election, you'll see a lot of this stuff come back again. It's interesting that Biden's got in. Look at the lot of data. It's all kind of disappeared, really. If Trump gets back in, I, guarantee, I can almost guarantee you'll see a lot of this, this stuff again. And, and, I, and I think that is a feature of our media and cultural and, and political sort of landscape. And are you perhaps inferring, Badeh, that when a right-wing government comes in, we will see more of a reaction from social justice activists than, you know, if a left-wing government was in power? Does, does that seem to perhaps spur them on? I think you're, you're seeing that now. It's been institutionalised. So you look at a lot of Biden's right. policy and, and it's been institutionalised. So I think that uh, so there is, there is slightly more com- comfort there yeah. from yeah. the sort of legacy institutions. I do think, I, I think in, in, in the UK at least, I think there are, the people are far more aware of this stuff now and just far more, they've had enough of it. Uh, my my personal reading of it is, uh, I, I, is I think that what you you will likely see is a, is a kind of growing reaction against this, right? I think if the Labour Party has any sense, it should drop this kind of the, the wokery stuff. I mean, it kind of does fairly well in university towns, but in terms of the good old British working class and ordinary people, it's a massive turnoff yeah. because of, because basically not just that, often it, it kind of ultimately does betray. The, the, the sort of central tenet, really, of, of left-wing politics, which is about sort of class, really, black and white, which class is, you know. But in terms of, I mean, are you really saying that um, someone like Rishi Sunak, who is, is an Indian heritage prime minister, went to some of the best private schools, is somehow uh, high, high levels of oppression or just, just what I mean? So it's how you, did somebody from, say, for example, born in, 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 the, in the valleys in Wales or in Hull or whatever and went to some, you know, really crappy states you see what i mean so so i so i think i i think that uh i think we'll, we'll see where it ends up but i do think we're turning the corner in the U, in the uk at least on 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 a lot of this kind of endless groundhog culture war stuff obviously on the gender thing it's still big mm. but i think on on the race and the race issue is kind of dialed back i think people are just sick of it now uh and just had enough really and if we kind of, yeah, just delve into perhaps racism, uh, you know, you cite in the book that terms like racism and white supremacy in popular media outlets increased by 789% and 2,827% respectively. And that the BBC's mentions of things like uh, racism has increased by 802%. And I wonder perhaps if you could explain, you know, why might this be a bad thing? Um, you know, because if there has been, for instance, as many people will say, if there has been historical acts of injustice against certain populations, then, you know, what would perhaps be the harm of uh, a greater um, awareness of things like racism? 
I think that uh, fighting racism and being against discrimination is a, is a great thing, right? Of course. I, for me, that's a great thing, right? And mm-hmm. especially I came from a very multiracial background, you know, I was born in London, blah, blah. That's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. But what I, what I think is a really bad thing is if you look at the opinion polling and you look at the data on levels of discrimination and racism in this country, it is one of the best countries in the world, bar none, to be an ethnic minority. And I, again, I go on a lot of the data, but there's, there's been loads and loads of this done, data analysis of this done, <laughs> right? So I think it's very, very unfair for our legacy institutions, BBC, et cetera, to constantly, and that, that by the way, was, was data compiled by a guy called David Rosado, done some fantastic work on this, uh, the data you just quoted from the, from the BBC, right? Mm. I think it's desperately unfair for a country like ours, which has been subject to mass immigration in the post-war period, right? Huge levels of immigration, which has both positive and negative effects, okay? To, broadly speaking, end up in a, in a space 60, 70 years down the line where um, uh, uh, racism is a very, very rare thing, okay? Now, what you tend to see is somebody says, oh, I was called this, and that, that person's a racist. Therefore, the UK is a racist country. So, so essentially, what, what, what you tend to see in the media is like an incident of some idiot or some scumbag allegedly saying something, right? And then suddenly the whole country is tarred as a, a kind of racist hellhole where we have millions of people want to come here. We have many pe- millions of people living here, multiple mixed-race families, yeah? And essentially, our major institutions have endless uh, positive discrimination, what's called positive action under the Equality Act, to promote, uh, out of whack, by the way, with the demographic population in this country, uh, ethnic minorities. You have universities, although the white working class, people that come from backgrounds like me and perhaps yours, right, uh, systemically the most underrepresented socioeconomic class in UK universities we have, uh, we have endless scholarships produced by universities to, to promote not even ethnic minorities per se, but black students. They're not Indian students or Chinese students, et cetera, but black students. So, so the idea that universities are institutionally racist or this country is institutionally racist, when you have mass positive discrimination ma- ma- under the Equality Act, what's called the, you know, positive action, right? Specific scholarships, institutions, um, uh, Popular cultural representations that are completely out of whack with the demographic population in this country, by the way, right? Not in London, but London is not this country. You go outside the M25, it looks very, very different. <laughs> okay, very different. So, do you see what I mean? So, 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 and 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 multiple mixed mixed race marriages. Essentially, essentially, if anybody stood up anywhere, right, and and shouted out a disgusting racial slur. And it was caught, especially if it was caught on like a cell phone. They'd mostly lose their job. There'd be a social pariah, and that would hang around them for the rest of their life. So, so, so the idea that our institutions, our culture, is somehow equivalent to sort of almost like Nazi Germany, it's just, it's just, it's absolute. Fantasy. And so, I think for me, what that, what that says to me is basically, is an absolute betrayal of the real, the really hard work. And the genuine levels of tolerance and solidarity that's been shown by this country to integrate and to work together, often in the face of quite a lot of adversity, by the way, right? 
So, 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 so it's kind of like, I'm going to swear again, it's like taking the piss. It really is like taking the piss, basically. It's, it's, it's a gas, it's, it's a gaslight. It's a gaslighting British culture and this country. It's basically saying, you're a racist hellhole. Somebody on the tube shouted out a racial slur. Therefore, the whole country should be damned. So, I mean, and you get this all the time. And so, and so my fear, where I'm coming from in all of this, right, is having come from a multiracial background, family, living, born and bred, right, my fear is this. Everybody is going to have a, a, a point, a breaking point. If you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, right, some, people are going to say, that some, so hang on a minute, so what I've got to do is I've got to accept the complete decolonization of my, my institutions. Be told my history is nothing but an uh, endless one of, of racism and evil. I can't have any national pride, right? I've got to have, accept endless immigration, otherwise I'll be called a racist, okay? I've got to accept the debasement of my culture and my history, okay? And I've got to grovel ultimately on my knees for something to, and to turn that to the British working class who hundred odd years ago were dying in the, in, at the age of 40, who were swept off the lands, rural areas, pushed into urban slums, lived in desperate poverty, right? Desperate poverty, tuberculosis, tuberculosis herded into workhouses, 16, 18 hours a day, little kids up chimneys. That's the history of most of the people of this country. So to turn around to them and to say to them, you're scum, which is what our, our, our legacy institutions do, Right, and then and then the other killer is this: most ethnic minorities. I say this in the book too. Are as proud to be British as the, as the white majority. You look at the, for example, the opinion poll, and some of it's so counterintuitive. The view of the police, black Africans and people of Indian and, and East Asian heritage have a more positive view of the police than what than the, the white majority are more proud to be British, identify with that identity. So my, so my final point is this. A lot of this stuff isn't even being driven by ethnic minorities. It's being driven by a really sort of like weird, whacked out uh, cultural elites within our media mainly, right, mostly white, invariably from very, very privileged backgrounds that want to sort of be the interlocutors and the, the narrators of this kind of social justice anti-racism. And, and basically what it translates into, and this is, this is the final point, is telling the British working class that they're scum, they're racist scum, and they've got to accept what they're being told. They can't have any national pride. They can't, they can't uh, be – their efforts, their history should be debased and destroyed. It's, that is, a, is what drives me forward. Right? I think that that is a disgusting narrative. And I think my personal opinion is you're going to see a big – Increasingly, a big reaction against that because people. Are, I think people are just getting that point and they've just had enough. I would love to kind of just perhaps square some things off with you. Um, so, as you write in the book, in 2019, the EU conducted one of the most extensive surveys across the European continent. Its report, "Discrimination in the European Union," highlighted that the United Kingdom is one of the least racist societies in all of Europe. But what's fascinating about this is that I can imagine that there will be people out there listening that say that how can this be true when you just have to see a black football player at the European Championships miss a penalty and then you will really see what kind of a racist country that 
Britain is. And if you look at some other data, for instance, StopHateUK.org say that of racially motivated hate crimes, there were 109,843 offences recorded in 2021-2022, which is an increase of 19%. So obviously we've got kind of these two ideas where, you know, you're arguing that, you know, we're, we're, we're and, and this report, for instance, well, that, you know, perhaps Britain is not a racist country, but there's also, you know, clearly acts of racism occurring within Britain. So how do we square these two things off? Basically, the so the notion of systemic racism is a funny one. It's an odd one, right? Because uh, what it seems to be saying is there are these kind of amorphous systems out there. And although we have extensive anti-discrimination laws and essentially anybody that was uttering even uh, anything racist would be fired, disciplined immediately, would mostly lose their careers and their livelihoods, right? We have this normative structure out there. We have this legal structure out, out there, right? Nonetheless, there's, there's this still this sort of alleged systemic racism. And this systemic racism also sort of perpetuates itself, even though uh, Chinese people and Indian people of Indian heritage out-earn the white majority. Chinese men, for example, earn 30% more than the average white man. Uh, even if you look at this, this is an interesting one as well, right? Black people, when you look at the, the ONS data, universities, black people tend to be treated as, as an amorphous lump, which I find very patronising and actually, you know, very almost racist, if you if you will, because you, it's like to work. You're talking about people from incredibly diverse cultures. How would you take somebody, for example, from Somalia and compare them sort of a Yoruba extraction from Nigeria or from uh, from Jamaica? Or from uh, even like you, you, I spent a lot of time growing up in with in Afro Caribbean families, you know, from Hackney. Even even within in, within the Caribbean, sort of, there's a kind of a sort of cultural differences between Jamaicans and Barbadians and St. Lucians, etc. Right. So when we talk about black, you know, even black people, we're talking about like odd. You know, it's not this kind of big this this mass. You look at the data, even like on on the exclusion rate, for example of black African kids in British schools compared to black Afro-Caribbean kids. The black Afro-Caribbean kids get excluded the most, uh, basically, uh, whereas black African kids get excluded less than the white majority. Uh, Same with, I think, A-level grades and GCSE grades. Okay, So even within the black uh, category, in our census data and our data, there are differences between kids or people from Afro-Caribbean backgrounds and black backgrounds, right? So, so essentially, this idea of systemic racism, the way it seems to sustain itself is like, this, despite all these disaggregated data differences and these huge variations, despite all the laws that we have, despite our normative culture, despite the, uh, the media, which is completely committed to the diversity and inclusion, despite all of this stuff going on, nonetheless, there's like this systemic thing. And how is it evidenced? Well, it's evidenced by basically... An example you just gave, somebody misses a penalty and you're discussing racist chants or whatever, right? But the thing about that is we, the vast majority of people would see those things, those chants or those whatever you just said, as disgusting, right? And if they're identified, those people would be, would be punished under anti-discrimination laws that exist in the UK and banned from the ground. In Nazi Germany, there were laws passed to systematically discriminate against ethnic minorities, especially Jews. Right? 
systematic laws. So the idea, so, so essentially, it's kind of an instance of, of racism doesn't mean that your the whole society is condemned or, or racist. And but that seems to be what we do all the time. You have an instance of like an alleged racist incident, or somebody, you know that, that thing recently about six months ago, somebody from the royal household said to a charity campaigner, where are you from? Or something like that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then, and then that that has been then, then suddenly now the whole UK is racist and, and this endless news cycle. And this is oh, you know. So do you see what I mean? So so the, the systemic thing is not really there. On the second question about what was the second question about the kind of um the the, the race the increase in, in racial crime or whatever, racist crime or whatever. Two kind of different findings, doesn't it? Where, you know, well, as, well, as you, yeah. yeah so you well, 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 no, to go back to go back to the other one. Like, again, if you look at the data, it gets very, very interesting. So in the book, right? If you look at the data in the in, in America about racist hate crimes, this is from the FBI and the Department of Justice. Black people in in America commit twi- on, a, per, uh, on a demographic basis commit twice the amount of racist hate crimes as white people do. Mm. It's, and so when I when I was looking at this data. And I was corroborated with academic research and others people have talked about. It was completely blown away by it. It was completely counterintuitive because obviously the dominant narrative is like America is a sort of deeply white supremacist, racist place, right? When you look at the data in terms of um, violence is committed with a, with a kind of a, ra- a racist element to it, right? Black people, according to the data at least, uh, are twice as uh, responsible as, as white people. It's obviously kind of whole kind of complicated sets of reasons that I talk about in the book around yeah. that, that data, right? There's, there's that, that's not in con- contestation, but the hard facts, the hard data, that's, that's what it shows. So again, even in the UK, it'd be very interesting to sort of disaggregate the data down. Um, so for example, we've seen some awful uh, homophobic attacks, attacks, haven't we, in the last couple of years, in the last year. I think there was one recently uh in london but it was a it was a muslim guy i think committed against three or stabbed or something like that so 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 essentially the reason the point i'm making here the meta point i'm making here is that the narrative of a racist or a sexist or homophobic white majority attacking minorities sexual minorities or ethnic minorities or religious minorities when you scratch away the data, often isn't borne out by what's actually going on. What you t- in London, you know, you'll have community people from all over the world. Some are much more conservative, for example, in relation to gender relations or sexual relations or even race relations than the white majority are. Right. So you know, so again, you have to dis- disaggregate the data. You have to sort of draw it out. We may say, oh, oh, there's more hate crime now being committed, and and one tends to think, oh, more white people or more white racists are committing, therefore the UK is a racist society. Well, just dealt with the question, in, instances are not systemic. In, mm. not, not, you can't back, back, backfill that and say, well, these, these three instances or these four instances therefore prove it's systemic. It's not the case. It's just not the case. And even then, if you, when you do have these awful attacks, uh, basically you, when you scratch away the surface, you have to look at who's doing what. You know, which populations is it, which populations committing these crimes? If someone is listening to this now and they say, "You know what, Doug? I totally agree with you. I think that you're right. You know, the West has done so much in terms of economics. It's done so much in terms of promoting liberalism. It's done so much in terms of freedom of thought, freedom of expression. We've built a great many institutions 
we have got so much in terms of equality, women's rights, we've made progress for minority groups. But yet, as you also say, the West, it tends to be very hard on itself. When other countries that have made less social progress may perhaps be more lenient. I could, Im- I could imagine an argument being made that the very self-criticism that, for instance, you were critiquing by here, you know, that the well that the West pays to itself, this kind of self-flagellation, this self-critique. I could imagine that someone else, there would be a line of argument to be made that that very attitude is also kind of a, a driver of progress on a great many fronts. What would you say to that? Basically, what I try to say in the book, I mean, there's various kind of meta, meta points I try to make. And one of the big points I try to make, and I think it's one of you, your listeners should really keep in mind, is no society or culture is settled. Nothing ever is. Right? So what we have now, I mean, look at the Roman Empire, for example. If you were a Roman citizen back in the day, in the Western Roman Empire, you sat there, you'd have a fairly good quality of life. Rome is incredibly civilised civilization. You'd look and think, this, this, is, this bad boy's going to go on indefinitely. It's amazing. Yeah. I've got, you've got this sauna here and I've got this going on. Yes, it's based <laughs> on all kinds of slavery and nastiness. But in the Roman imagination, I didn't matter. These were like unterminch. They didn't, you know, they're just lower orders and whatever, right? But then it, it, things collapse. So in other words, what we have, you know, they're, they're made, but they have to be remade and defended. Okay. So I guess it's the, 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 the vibe on that really is what do you think is going to halt what makes the UK? Is the UK, is, the, is Great Britain just a flat space, an empty kind of conveyor belt of economic exchange where anybody can come in open borders and just come and go and there doesn't need to be any kind of national identity sense of national social solidarity and essentially the social contract that, that people that stay here and live here and pay their taxes are going to pay into a system where anybody can come in and take from it as as, as, as at will you see what i mean so so in other so, so, in, so in other words essentially what really is what what holds it together it, it, it's kind of it's, it's it's history it's institutions it's sense of self it's sense of uh confidence this is the other thing as well i try to outline in the book any any civilization, right, or any any culture has to have a degree of confidence, has to have a, a sense of self-belief to some extent. Otherwise, you're dead in the water, right? I mean, and, and, and this is the kind of the end of the book on this chapter, the final major point. Going into the future, we face really in, in incredible structural forces that are baked in into the international system, right? So we have the rise of China. Now, there's all kind of elements of problems with China, but nonetheless, the rise of China and what that means, that's both a good thing, but it also can be a very bad thing in terms of geopolitics and, and sort of the potentiality for war and flashpoints in East Asia and what that would mean for the global economy. You know, uh, major international conflict. We have Russia in Ukraine still going along. And essentially, so Russia and, and, and China are two very self-confident. Russia may be less so, but nonetheless, it has a very powerful nationalist narrative, right? China really does. It has a sense of civilizational purpose and a strategy to attain what it wants ultimately, right? And so so it, ha- it has this thing going forward. So essentially, I think 
my point is really what holds the UK together? What are, so its institutions used to be the glue or the, the, the transmission points, if you will, of that broader culture. But now even the Church of England has now gone down this kind of like uh, this crazy line. You're seeing it also even, even in the monarchy. I mean, King, you know, King Charles is endorsing these kind of ideas. So, and, and, and I just think, I just think there's, a, there's, a, there's a radical disconnect between these institutions and these cultural narratives that we see and the people. I think most people now are just absolutely sick of this. Uh, and, 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 then, and then going into the future too, I mean, what happens in terms of mass migration? So the, 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 the demography of the UK is not, it doesn't look great. It looks slightly better than various other European nations, but it's not great. We're, gonna, we're all going to get a lot older and there's not that many young people. So then, so then what do you do about that in terms of the social contract, the National Health Service, you know, the, the tax burdens, the debt burdens imposed on young people? Do you, do you, do you keep importing people? How do you deal, deal with that? Then we have what's called uh, been called a youth quake in Africa. So Nigeria is a massively growing population. Essentially, in the absence of good governance and all the kind of institutions and the political economies you're going to need in Africa to deal with these massive populations, young young populations, Europe's getting really old and grey. Africa's really growing. We're already seeing mass migration patterns taking place. So where, where are those where are those migra- mi- migration patterns and flows going to go? What will the reaction be in European politics in relation to this stuff? You see what I mean? So it's, it's kind of a it's, a it's a very kind of odd mix now, and I think unless our political system and and our elites and our cultural and political elites really begin to grasp the deeper structural changes that are taking place, secular changes that are baked in, and what this would portend for British politics, I think that we're going to enter into a, a very very quote unquote interesting period. I'm really curious when you compare and contrast what is happening here in Britain against what is happening in the US in terms of things like, you know, the culture wars. Is it fair to say that the US is more polarised than it is here? I think they, they, I think they are polarised. But again, yeah, I think Twitter, you know, so I tr- social media, what I try and sort of, uh, uh, sort of, I won't bore you with this too much. This guy called Bill Hicks. He was a great comedian back in the day. He was a fantastic comedian. Died way too young, right? He did this skit back in the early 90s. I'm giving, giving my age away here. I'm just an old man, right? <laughs> Where he was talking about the endless news cycle and CNN and war and famine and blah, 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 blah. And you watch this stuff and you're like, oh, my God, the world's ending. And then you look out the window and he does his impression of a cricket just and it's just like children playing on the playgrounds. You know? <laughs> so, so, so I think I think, I think that I don't want to get too negative or too pessimistic. I think a lot, you know, Twitter can, social media in general can often drive quite negative kind of um, dynamics in and of itself. I think that, uh, but I do think the, U- the the US culture does seem to be a lot more polarised. The, the the politics of the US seem to be extraordinarily tribal, mm. right? And then, then you have these kind of demographic, but also these structural forces in US politics. I think a deep reaction on the part of a lot of blue collars, blue collar workers, and the working class in the US, which seems to have, you know, reacted very strongly and, and rightfully so to globalization, right? And, and the, more, the more negative elements of globalization, and that has created its own dynamic in, in US politics. So essentially, it's about how the US reconstitutes itself. But at the same time, the US is doing quite well. The US economy is doing 
seems to be doing really quite well. There are elements it needs to tweak, but you know, so so that but but what I would say about the UK, and this is something, and I, I say I, I'm a scholar of American foreign policy. I, I deeply admire the US. It has incredible strengths. And I'm very thankful also about kind of the US's kind of deeper super, military superintendence within, within, within the global, you know, within the global politics. It's, it's kind of the linchpin, if you will, of the Western international system in many ways, right? So, 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 but I do think that as a country, we have to now really begin to pull away more from the US culture industries. I really feel that yeah, very strongly in the last decade in particular, we've imported so much negative poison into this country. That doesn't speak to our national story. Doesn't speak to our multi, you know, multi to our to our working class. Doesn't speak to our multi, even our multiracial story. You know, we've we've imported this stuff in, and I think it's been really very negative. This kind of uh, this 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 stuff has, has seeped into our institutions, and you know, even like the EDI stuff, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion. That all comes from American corporate culture too, and it's now become our kind of corp, corporate ruling class ideology. Of woke capitalism, essentially, and this again comes from kind of America. so. So I think I, I'm a great admirer of America, but I think more now needs to be done to sort of inoculate and insulate ourselves from sort of a lot of the kind of the, the absolute crap that comes out of the American culture industry. Go just watch a Hollywood movie; it's the endless reproduction of a kind of, I guess, a kind of woke moral story. You're, you're not going to be entertained. You kind of almost, you know, you've been you've been preached at all the time. Is patronized and preached at in this kind of saccharine Hollywood. It's like a sort of you bite into it. And there's nothing. There's nothing in there. It's just. Uh, it's just ridiculous. But anyway, I've, I've gone on way too long on that one. But yeah, I mean that that's that's where I'm at on that. And I would love to kind of perhaps switch gears and perhaps change the conversation from Britain to America. Um, so I found some data. Nicole Piquero, uh, a researcher from the University of Miami stated that their survey results from the Implicit Association Test, the IAT, have more than 4.8 million adults, including 8,000 police officers, found that one in five hold anti-black attitudes. And before I continue, it's worth highlighting that the IAT has been a, a hotly debated topic. Many people have questioned the reliability, the translatability of it, um, but nonetheless, however, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, for instance, findings like that, and perhaps the current mood that so many people across the United Kingdom, across the United States have, that, you know, the police are racist. What what are your thoughts about, you know, that statement that the police are racist? I, I've not read the study, but uh, uh, the, the, the anti- Again, these terms anti-black bias. I, I, I don't. I mean, it's, it strikes me as a very amorphous term. If that's the term she used, I don't. What, what does that mean? I mean, again, if you stick, you stick to the data. Uh, if you stick to the data, uh, which I go, I go over in the book. And again, th- this this happens for incredibly complicated reasons, right? And no doubt, also partially related to the history of, of like segregation. No doubt about that, right? And racism. Okay, so I'm not, not contesting that. But if you look at the actual data, um, essentially about 50, oh, it's like 53, I think it's 53% of most homicides and murders are committed by um, uh, 13% of the, the, the black population, which can constitute, I think, 12.7% of the, of the US population. 
And the vast majority of them are, are, are committed by young black men. And unfortunately, but also most of the victims are also young black men. So a lot of the murder rates, basically, are young black men killing young black men. And that's just a fact. That's just a fact. Often, and even gun crime, look at all the data on gun crime, some of the most well-armed states have also some, got some of the least amount of gun crime, often quite rural, basically. Most of the gun crime is often concentrated in sort of small pockets of, of, of like urban conurbations, okay? Again, you look at the data on police killings. So I think I think I, I have to go back in the memory hole here, but I think over about a 10-year period, it's been close to 600 police killed, Okay, and most and most most of the police killed are killed by young black men, young black armed men. I think it was in 2019 they asked the sort of population of left liberal uh, people what their what their sense of the number of people killed, young black young uh, black men killed by the cops. And it was like something like two thousand, three thousand. In 2019, the actual number was 19 unarmed black men. By the way, 19. Right. So if you look at the data, look, so I look at that lot of the academic data in the book. Essentially, what you tend to have is you have a disproportionate killing of police by young black men. Uh, and a lot of the, 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 the committed the crime is committed by young black men, often killing other young black men. So the reason I'm saying all that is because that then relates to the kinds of high stress, often highly violent interactions that the police have. So basically, if you're having, uh, uh, high stress, violent interactions with armed offenders. Essentially, you know, you're always going to get you. You're going to get more death. You're going to get more killing. You get more bullets fired. You're not stopping somebody because they dropped a sort of a, a sweetie packet on, on on the pavement. You know, you're you're in high stress. You see what I mean? So, so and, and and I just want to reiterate the the reasons for that are very complicated. Related to history, no doubt the history of segregation and racism. Uh, 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 no doubt about that. Um, kind of, you know, sociological reasons, family breakdown, culture, you name it. There's a whole host of different academic explanations as to why those things occur. But that's what the data it shows, basically. So, again, when I was looking at stuff, because I kind of thought, you know, American cops, racism, stuff like when I was looking at that, I was like, again, this is very, very counterintuitive to me. This is, this is, this was kind of, Disabusing me of my own prejudices, insofar as what I was looking at the data, and it was like it wasn't confirming what I thought would, would be the case. It was actually almost under my completely overturning it. In fact, so um, so 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 I think so I think there. I mean, the cops in in relation to your Cardiff point about Cardiff students and cops and police, right? Again, it's kind of like a it's kind of I guess it's student union politics, really, isn't it? I mean, the cops are an easy easy thing. You know, all the cops, all cops are bastards, and it's just, it's just, it's just a non-event as far as I, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it, having having come from Hackney and having and having seen what can happen in the absence of law and order, not just in Hackney, but in other parts of the world, when you have the breakdown of law and order, and I did a piece in the Unheard, I think, over the weekend on this, is that you don't you don't get this kind of like uh, hippie utopia. All sat around a student union, passing spiffs around, peace and love. You get anarchy and chaos. You get people getting stabbed and shot and murdered, and and the strong will dominate the weak. That is that is just the fact of it, right? So that's that's why you have law and order. The law and order is basically about equality. It's about applying uh, in an ideal world, applying the, the law in an equal basis and defending the weak from the strong. That's what norms are about. Ultimately, if you think about it on a civilizational basis, right? Uh, uh, 
you know, like we get the piss taken out of us all the time. The British queue all the time. They queue, you know, like, you know, you see, you, I mean, God, if you know, you see a long queue around the corner for the bus, right? Well, that what's that? that basically is based on a social norm, and that social norm is ultimately to protect the weak. You'll get old people. If you go to Greece, I love Greece. I've been going to Greece for thirty years. I love Greece. Incredibly, it's formed me as a person. No doubt about that. But a bus comes along, and literally, everybody just, there's no queue. Everybody just gets on, and like you know, the the young, the old ones get on the, the strong ones get on, and then the the old the old dears get on last. And you know, <laughs> you see what I mean. So basically, you have these social norms. I think that's also related to kind of the debate around trans, trans issue as well and the protection of, of female spaces insofar as, you know, the, the first line of defence is ultimately social, is really social norms. You you fray those social norms. I mean, then there are various other lines of defence. You've got social norms and then the most extreme form of law and order and the police will be there ultimately in an ideal society to, to, to apply the law, basically. So, uh, so... So, so that that been my point. In, in the absence of the police, in the absence of these things, you don't get a you don't get a kind of decentralized anarchist utopia sat around, you know, kumbayaring. You get anarchy, you get chaos, and you get the strong will, will prey on the weak. Final point, and, I'll, I'll, and if you if you want to contest that, you know, again, it goes back to this kind of student union idiocy, in my opinion. Of like the critique of capitalism, the critique of industrialization. Just go back and read some books on the anthropological, physical anthropological record of pre-industrial civilization societies. There's, again, at the heart of a lot of this stuff is this kind of painting of pre-industrial tribal societies. They're like they're more in tune with nature and they're just more egalitarian. And you know, and the, the Native American Indians, the indigenous. And the, you actually look at the anthropological record, it's complete nonsense. It's tribal warfare, there's masculines, the Aztecs, the, the Comanches, you know. You see what I mean? So this kind of fantasy, that there is, there's a lot of this fantasy we have in our politics. Uh, and I, so I think, I think that's key. Norms and law and order are fundamental to it. I could imagine that there would be a trail of thought, an argument that some people would make that if there has been historical injustice against certain groups, then they could very well make the case that this would lead, you know, to there being poorer socioeconomic statuses, which we know is associated with, for instance, higher crime. Um, so I would love to kind of ask you, you know, in those instances, you know, where there's poorer, poorer socioeconomic statuses, is likely also going to be poorer educational outcomes. Um, so what do you think in those instances about things like diversity quotas, in terms of things like scholarship giving, in terms of uh, equity hiring? What are your kind of thoughts in terms of perhaps those? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily diversity quotas are the way forward uh, because there's a whole set of rationales around that but you already have quite a substantial black middle class in, in the states and what does the black middle class do i saw it myself in hackney you know or as soon as you get a bit of money if you can especially if you've got young kids you, you get out so you kind of like a sort of white flight in the 60s you know people leaving in london what, what, what sociologists call white flight you sort, of, you, you, you sort of have that too. You, as soon as you have like development of middle class ethnic minorities, they tend to leave and get more suburban because they're going to get 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 out of of the, of 
those things. So, yeah. So, I, so, so you see that. I mean, if you look at the just sticking to this country, I mean, you, you, I mean, the the data is pretty clear. I mean, the, the, if you want to put it in very brutal terms, the most successful uh, ethnic minorities in this country are those from East Asian extraction, Chinese and Japanese in particular, Chinese in particular, and those from Indian heritage. Basically, <clears throat> they they do the best. They tend to have the best educational outcomes. Um, they tend to uh, they tend to they earn more money. Tend to earn more money than the white majority, uh, etc. Uh, uh, so, and I think I mentioned earlier on as well. If you're in the so-called black category, there are huge cultural different differences amongst people from different uh, black heritage backgrounds. So, you know, somebody from Nigeria. Uh, even Nigeria, and I, I teach a lot of them now. I've had loads of Nigerian students in my time, and loads of great, fantastic PhD students. I've got one just, just, just finished. And so, you know, we, we talk a lot, basically. And even within Nigeria, Africa is the most populous nation. You have very different, you know, things. You have a class dynamic going on. You have a rural-urban dynamic going on. You have Yoruba Nibo and other tr- tribal elements to it too. You have Christian and Muslim. So even that in that one African nation. You're talking about incredible levels of diversity, uh, and so do you see what I mean. So, so there's all this, there's all this stuff going on on there. So, so just sort of a simplistic. Um, uh, I mean, if we if we were being absolutely true to this idea that we need to sort of have specific quotas for the most disadvantaged, and we're, we're being kind of blind on the disadvantage, rather than having a sort of intersectional matrix of identity, you basically, I think. I still to this day think the biggest disadvantage you could possibly have is your social economic background and class really is, right? You, you can't possibly tell me that somebody who's, a, say, a black individual or an Indian individual from Eton or Winchester College comes from an upper middle class or comes from Nigerian royalty, right? Or, or, or mummy and daddy were diplomats in Geneva. And I'm, I'm giving that actual examples here, right? If you sort of scratch the surface a little bit. You can't possibly tell me, and then get invariably get well-paid jobs as kind of interlocutors on media, sort of narrate how bad we are, or they get really good jobs at leading institutions and British, you know, universities. You can't possibly say that that that, that individual has faced more adversity than some council estate kid from the Valleys in Wales. No, I mean, you, you go sort of sort of. Terrible schools, desperate poverty. Mum and dad in, in like insecure. If they got, if they got a dad, most really often of single mums, comes from a culture of that and a history of it. Hundred years ago from the mines, kids, kids put, put down mines. Mum, dads put down mines, breathing in this, this getting cancer, dying. That that, that has that has a history to it. That has a kind of generational trauma to it. Well, why don't we talk about that? You know, do you see what I mean? So the idea that essentially on the intersectional matrix, because of somebody's racial or sexual, or I'm not saying that might, might not be a case of oppression, but even then, this endless talking about oppression and injustice, why don't we as a culture, as a, as a, as a, as a multiracial, as a liberal democracy, talk more about excellence or how we support businesses or how we support uh, growth and economic growth or innovation or research? Why is this endless cultural script on of cultural repudiation and denigration, you know, endlessly going on about rather than what's going to lift us all up? What's going to lift us all up out of the mire? Black, white, everybody, men, women, 
straight gay. It's innovation. It's technology. It's more housing, you know, planning reforms to get more housing, to lift people out of the mic. That's what's going to do it. Not this endless cultural BBC script of denigration and repudiation and how bad we all are. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a dalliance of, in my opinion, people in, in our cultural institutions that I just think should ultimately, I hate to say it, but should just be removed, should be utterly removed because they're useless. I mean, I, 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 I'll, I'll go a bit of a run now. I used to listen to BBC Four all the time. I used to listen to Women's Hour, BBC Four all the time. Back in the day, I'm going back a while here, right? Occasionally, I'm on the car, I'm driving in somewhere. I put, put the radio on here, you know, and it's and it's like it's plummy voices. Oh, so they've got a comedy show on today, and, and they've got they've got Timothy with new play. Let's do it. And it cracks a joke, and it's like it's dead. It's got no humour to it. And I think how did how did how did little Tim, Timmy boy get get this gig? Let me guess, his mummy or daddy, you know, you see what I mean? So. It's, it, these, it just doesn't speak to them. I just don't think, and that's why I think we're seeing the death of these institutions. And, and I think they've ultimately betrayed the country. They have betrayed the country. They've, they've gaslit it. They've told it a, a, a bullshit story, right, for too long. And people know this. They, they're waking up to this stuff. They're sick of it. That's why people watch social media, the growth of podcasts, YouTube, alternative media streams. And that itself has its own dangers in terms of fact-checking and, you know, veracity. But people, I just think, are sick of it. They're just sick. They're just, they want a positive story. They don't want to be told and denigrated and told that history and their institutions are bad and wrong. They have a different story. They have a different story. Man, tell these guys where they can connect with you, uh, where they can get the book and wherever else you'd love our, our audience to check out. Well, they can connect. I mean, the only social media I do is on Twitter, and I'm a bit wary of Twitter anyway because it's a bit of a funny medium. But I'm on Twitter at ProfDWS, so you can you can follow me there at ProfDWS. Basically, you can buy my book. It's out in paperback already. I think I was about to come out in all very good bookstores on Amazon. So I think what I think is a very reasonable price of about twelve quid or so it's thereabouts. Uh, so you can do that. Uh, I'm, I'll obviously be doing more social media in the next, next couple of months. Stuff will be coming out, um, basically. So, yeah, that's it. That, that, that's really it. And uh, if you get the book, I hope you enjoy the book. If you come along to one of the events I'm talking at, if you want, I can sign it for you. Uh, you know, a very reasonable price. You know, I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, come along if you want, you know. And uh, But it's been a pleasure. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, basically. We've covered a lot of ground, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Joe. 